This week, batteries that can store even the most intermittent energy source. It's even conceivable that individual homes with solar panels on the roof could have, instead of an oil tank in the basement, you could store a day's worth of sunshine. And the teams charged with keeping campuses safe. A person with a very definitive plan had gathered the weapons, gathered the ammunition, was gathering the capacity and, frankly, the willpower to take those next steps toward causing harm. Plus, fossilised skin reveals the colours of ancient sea monsters. This is the Nature Podcast for January the 9th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. The trouble with energy sources like wind is that they're a bit erratic. So you can get plenty of energy at some times, but not enough at other times. The same goes for solar power and other intermittent energy sources. So what if this energy could be stored at peak times to compensate for those times that are a bit lacking? One solution is to charge batteries. But conventional batteries aren't good at delivering their full power capacity for long periods of time. Step up the flow battery. Like conventional batteries, the energy in flow batteries is stored in chemicals. But flow batteries are more flexible when it comes to long-term delivery. I spoke to Michael Aziz from Harvard University about flow batteries and started by asking him how they differ from their conventional cousins. A flow battery stores the energy in liquid chemicals that are contained in external tanks instead of inside the battery itself. It's similar to a fuel cell in that respect. A fuel cell stores the energy in hydrogen gas outside the fuel cell, and then when you need to convert that chemical energy into electrical energy, you run it through the fuel cell to make electricity. The difference with a flow battery is that you have to be able to run it frontwards and backwards. You'd run run it backwards to charge up the flow battery, electricity being converted into chemical energy and stored in chemicals in the tanks, and then run it frontwards to get the energy back out, converting the chemicals back into electricity just like a fuel cell. And why would we use these kinds of flow batteries instead of the traditional garden variety batteries that, that other, others may know about? Well, flow batteries are better suited for storing very large amounts of electrical energy cheaply. The amount of energy you can store is limited only by the size of the tanks and the amount of storage chemicals you can afford. What's been limiting the use of them so far? Why are we not all adopting flow batteries at the moment? Well, until now, flow batteries have relied on chemicals that are expensive or they're difficult to maintain. The flow battery that's the most commercially advanced is one that uses vanadium, which is a very expensive metal. What we've done is we've built a flow battery based on the chemistry of naturally abundant and inexpensive organic molecules called quinones, no metals. These molecules are cheap. They're in all green vegetables. They're in crude oil. Does that mean that potentially we could be extracting our battery solutions or chemicals of batteries from cabbages in the future? In principle, it's possible that we can extract our battery molecules from cabbages. In particular, there's a quinone in rhubarb that's essentially the same molecule we're using right now in our battery. Uh, we've All we've done is attach a couple a- extra atoms to it to make it soluble in water. And uh, we've thought about actually trying to extract from rhubarb to prove the point. 
all of this is part of the, the drive towards different, more renewable ways of generating electricity. And things like solar and wind power are starting to get close to being competitive. Could it be innovations like these new batteries that push that over the edge and make them competitive energy sources? I think it could be, because the biggest obstacle now to getting a large fraction of our electricity from sunshine and wind is their intermittency. So what do you do when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing? This problem is the one that we think we can solve with a way to store massively large amounts of electrical energy if we can make it cost-effective and safe. And we think we've taken a big step in that direction now. Paint me a picture of what a typical city would look like. Are there going to be big tanks sitting on the top of buildings? There could be solar farms with storage tanks near them. It's even conceivable that individual homes with solar panels on the roof could have, instead of an oil tank in the basement, you could store a day's worth of sunshine in your storage tank and watch TV and power your cooking at night. Is there any you know, time scale that you could give before perhaps these kinds of batteries might be able to be used? Well, we have a new program now with a wing of the U.S. Department of Energy called ARPA-E. At the end of three years, we're supposed to have something the size of a horse trailer that could be, say, wheeled up to a building and hooked up to a solar array on the roof uh, to demonstrate how it works, how well it works, you know, how it's integrated with the electric power coming into the building and going out of the building. And if it works well, then maybe it can go into manufacturing at that point and start to grow over the next few years beyond that. That was Michael Aziz of Harvard University. Coming up later, ancient sea monsters show their true colours. But first, keeping campuses safe. Violent incidents are rare on university campuses, but they do happen. In 2010, after being denied tenure, biology professor Amy Bishop shot six fellow faculty members at the University of Alabama in Huntsville, killing three of them. In 2007, in another highly publicised case, 32 students were gunned down by a fellow student at Virginia Tech. To guard against such cases, many campuses have built threat assessment teams, gathering and acting on reports of suspicious behaviour. Brendan Marr has a feature this week looking at how to build a successful team. He joins me on the line. Brendan, violent events on campuses are on the increase. Why? With you know increasing enrolment and also increased reporting, there's definitely a pretty high trend of increase in terms of violent incidents on campus. And this was outlined in a report called Campus Attacks that was headed up by the FBI and the Department of Education, looking at incidents that have happened all the way back until about 1900. And and you do certainly see in, in the past couple of decades uh, a pretty amazing increase in the number of incidents, but all the reasons for that are, are not completely clear. And I suppose one of the big questions is, could these attacks and others like them be prevented if universities had done more in these cases to pick up on threats and deal with them? Well, certainly there are a number of people who think that these cases can be uh, prevented and that incidents where people are dealing uh, certainly with mental health crises or, or just other kinds of problems that they can't particularly solve very well on their own, uh, they, they feel that involving these kinds of threat assessment teams uh, these are you know interdisciplinary teams of, of 
mental health professionals, law enforcement, and school administrators working together that they can help people through these these crises and, and hopefully avert things uh, rising to the level of violence. Now, one source you spoke to about how to build a threat assessment team is someone who's been doing this for about two decades. Here he is. His name is Gene Dysinger, and he's now the director of threat management at Virginia Tech. What we have found that works best is a multidisciplinary approach. So this is not solely a law enforcement or mental health or social services or academic uh, perspective. We're bringing the best of all of those sources of information and those resources to bear to problem solve to mitigate and decrease risk associated with situations. Um, Many of the people that I spoke with when I first came here were uh, still highly traumatized by the events of 2007. And so hearing what those concerns are, how that affected their ongoing sense of the safety and the security and the well-being of the campus uh, was very important to building alliances with them. Uh, Brendan, are are university campuses any different from other places that could be a scene of a threat? You know, university campuses are big. Uh, There's lots of students, lots of faculty, lots of staff. And there's often extraneous people who are related to people on staff. You have uh, significant others. There's also past students. So you have this huge population of people who have sort of an involvement in the university or school. And, you know, that's a little bit different from workplaces where you have a bit more stability and and probably less turnover. Also, you know, college campuses are, are... generally seen as these sort of, you know, libertarian places where, uh, you know, it's kind of the seat of learning and there's, you know, expectation of, of intellectual freedoms. You know, people are concerned that threat assessment teams and this, this entire approach in general could really impinge on, on liberties and, and freedoms on, on university campuses. This, you know, sort of forms a bit of a police state in some ways in that uh, you have people who are able to kind of look into your business. And in terms of I suppose some of the data behind this, I mean, how can universities monitor how well their threat assessment teams might be doing when the best outcome is that nothing happens in a way? Right. Well, you talk to someone like Gene Dysinger, and and he really looks at sort of the success of a case, an individual case, where, like we've been saying, you know, if he's helping someone through a crisis or helping them to solve a problem, he looks at that as a success on an individual level. So by trying to, you know, mitigate or, or avert any potential disaster, there's often a lot of uh, you know, positive things that can happen along the way. At least this is the way people involved in threat assessment see it. And good time to go back to Gene Dysinger then, who certainly has plenty of examples of incidents he's pretty sure he's averted. One that uh, comes to my mind was several years ago in another organization, but uh, a person with a very definitive plan had gathered the weapons, gathered the am- ammunition, was gathering the capacity and, frankly, the willpower um, to take those next steps toward causing harm and also happened to be acutely and severely mentally ill, which is not necessarily the norm in these cases. And I can remember uh, it striking me how very close it seemed that we came when you see the weapons stacked up in the bedroom and the amount of ammunition and the warrior garb that they're wearing with camouflage and black clothes and the threats that they're making. Uh, that was uh, That was very disturbing. However, with a very positive outcome of a person we were able to assist in getting the acute mental health treatment that they needed, and uh, eventually that person moved on to be successful in other areas of life, and there were no further instances that we know of of uh, threats of violence uh, directed toward others.
That was Gene Dysinger of Virginia Tech and before him reporter Brendan Marr, whose feature you'll find at nature.com news. Now it's time for the research highlights, read by Thea Cunningham. We know fibre is good for the gut, and it turns out it's good for the lungs too. Mice on high-fibre diets had less inflamed lungs than their low-fibre friends. Inflamed lungs are a sign of asthma, so the discovery could explain the rise of asthma in developed countries where people are eating less fibre. The team, based in Switzerland, exposed mice on high-fibre and low-fibre diets to a trigger of asthma, house dust mite. The high-fibre mice had healthier lungs because they had different microbes living in their guts, which the researchers think can pacify immune cells that otherwise cause inflammation. Read more in Nature Medicine. In August of 2012, a giant sinkhole opened in Bayou Corn, Louisiana. Local residents had noticed bubbling gas and minor earthquakes in the months before, but they didn't expect the ground to open up. Now researchers think they could forecast imminent holes by using radar data. A California-based team looked at radar measurements taken up to a year before the BioCorn event. Unusually, the ground had shifted horizontally towards the pit. You'd normally expect to see the ground move vertically. Data like this could be used to forecast when sinkholes will appear and grow, and put people and their properties out of danger. Read more in the journal Geology. The News Roundup is on its way and Richard Van Norden will be here with the news team's predicted 2014 science highlights. First though, some paleontologists have been doing a spot of colouring in. These days, paleontology isn't just the study of old bones. Sometimes scientists can extract biological materials from fossils like DNA or even traces of fossilised feathers or skin. Johan Lindgren from the University of Lund in Sweden has taken a close look at three examples of fossilised skin from ocean-dwelling reptiles that lived up to 200 million years ago. The skin reveals what these now-extinct species might have looked like and even how they were able to adapt to cold waters. Charlotte Stoddart gave Johan a call. I'm a biologist uh, by training, you know, and I'm really interested in the biology of these animals, you know, what were they like, you know, many, many millions of years ago? How were they as animals and how did they live? And now when we're actually starting to gather additional evidence about, you know, the biology of these animals based upon their own biomolecules. For this paper, you studied three nicely preserved examples of fossilised skin Can you just start off by telling us which three species these examples came from? The first specimen is a fossil uh, leatherback turtle. So it's uh, roughly 55 million years old. And the second one is skin from an 85 million year old mosasaur. That's a, a huge marine lizard. And then finally, the third sample is from an ichthyosaur. Uh, That's also a a marine lizard that looked almost like a fish. What does fossilised skin look like? Well, it it varies, but in this case, it's actually dark patches. It looks like a halo that surrounds the the fossil specimen, so it's very dark uh, patches of uh, some blackish-like film. And what about when you look at this underneath a microscope? Well, then suddenly, uh, micrometer-sized bodies emerged. What do you think these bodies are? 
Well, that's that's the question because there are two hypotheses what they really are. Either there are uh, bacteria, or they are remains of uh, pigment-containing cellular organelles called melanosomes. So what we did, uh, we analyzed the chemical contents of these microbodies, and um, they all contain uh, eumelanin, which is a, a pigment. So from your study, can you now say uh, what these three now extinct species looked like? Do you know what colour they were? Uh, we can say that there's a, a really good chance that these animals were in fact either black or at least very dark. And the case of the ichthyosaur, we can actually say that presumably the entire animal wasn't countershaded, meaning that it didn't have a, a, a dark back and a pale belly, but it was dark all over. Mm, so a bit like a um, a sperm whale or something. Exactly. Interesting, the sperm whale is, is a deep diver, and ichthyosaurs, they have been assumed to be uh, deep divers as well. So that's an interesting uh, similarity. Does this tell you um, anything about the environment, for example, that these animals lived in? Well, we know from, from the modern leatherback turtle, it's, it's a very interesting animal because uh, it is the only marine turtle that actually live not only in the tropics, but also it ventures up into really cool, temperate and even arctic environments. And that has partly been attributed to its large size. But also it has been noted that these animals, they actually bask at the surface when the weather is nice. And then they're used in their black coloration to increase the absorption rate of the sun rays and also to elevate their body temperature. And given that the fossil uh, marine turtles and also the mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs, they were spread all over the world. So they presumably did, did the same thing. What more um, soft tissues or preserved chemicals do you think you might find in fossilised remains? Well, it's, it's an entire new field, actually, and it's, it's growing Actually, when I started at the university back in 1993, you know, that was the same year as Jurassic Park, you know, when that was released as a movie. And back then it was, you know, virtually impossible that you could actually have any biological remains of, of an animal that had been extinct for many millions of years. But now, 20 years later, you know, we're suddenly getting remains of, of proteins, of, of lipids, and pigments and you know who knows what's out there it's really really an amazing time that we're living in and it's really exciting johan lindgren talking to charlotte finally this week what could 2014 have in store for science richard van norden is here with some predictions richard happy 2014 and let's look to space first what's what's going to be happening out there there's a lot happening in space missions this year, and maybe the most exciting one is the European Space Agency's plan to land a probe on a comet, which has never, ever been done before. This is the Rosetta spacecraft, which was actually launched in 2004. It's been on a bit of an epic journey. It's gone around the Earth three times and slingshotted around Mars, and now it's going towards comet 67P slash Churyumov-Gerasimenko in November. Now, before that happens, it's got to wake up. It's in deep sleep at the moment. It's turned off to conserve energy. 
And on the 20th of January, the European Space Agency is going to hope that all its systems are go. If that all works out, Rosetta will push forward towards this comet, which has a core about two and a half miles wide. It should meet it in August, and in November it will deploy a robotic lander onto the comet's surface. And the idea is to find out what this thing's made of, or how fast it's going, or what? What kind of properties are interesting about comets? So this comet is making its closest approach to the sun in 2015. And, well, these are these are icy bodies and we don't know much else about them, really. They're very primitive objects in the solar system. And the idea is that the robot will be sitting on this comet, taking samples, recording images, watching the sun's influence on the comet's ice and its tail as it, as it approaches. So it would be a fantastic mission if it all goes well. It's a little bit Icarus, isn't it, plummeting towards the sun? Let's move on to one of your other predictions, and this is about, uh, well, broadly, monkeys. Yeah, so we had a great success last year with these uh, new methods that make it easier to edit genomes. There's one called CRISPR, um, which uses a kind of RNA template to precisely guide um, genome editing. It allows you to precisely slice out bits of DNA. And using these kinds of new tools, we should see several research groups make transgenic monkeys this year. That's with altered genes so that they, for example, have brain disorders or like autism or immune system deficiencies. Now, scientists have often wanted to do this because mice and rodents are not necessarily very good models of these diseases. It's much easier to uh, edit genes in mice, even with clumsier techniques, because you can just um, have a lot of mice in the litter and just pick out the ones for which it worked and they reproduce quickly. Um, With primates, that's not the case. So uh, we should see the first models of transgenic primates this year, and that you know might bring us closer to therapies that are relevant to humans. It could also raise ethical concerns because we will be seeing experiments on on monkeys with edited genomes. Okay, and the final uh, 2014 prediction, or rather the highlight uh, for many people this summer, the highlight of their summers will be the Football World Cup taking place in Brazil. But there is going to be a little bit of science in there, maybe. Yeah, at the opening ceremony, going to be a massive occasion, and the neurobiologist Miguel Nicolelis, who's at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, has developed a brain-controlled exoskeleton. So hopefully, he says, uh, he's going to get a paraplegic uh, patient, a child with a spinal cord injury, to come out at the opening ceremony of the World Cup um, and using their brain linked up with an EEG machine to control an exoskeleton that will help their foot kick the first ball at the opening ceremony, which sounds incredible. Now, I should say here that this is actually won't actually be the first time this has been achieved. Other researchers have already shown you can do this with EEG linking it to an exoskeleton, but of course it will be a massive stage for this kind of technology. But I suppose it is the first time that this has been done in this very non-clinical context in front of the entire world. I mean, how is the neuroscience community expected to react to this? I think they're going to be excited because... Anything that brings this the attention of the remarkable strides made in this field to a wider audience is, is going to be welcomed. Uh, Nicolaitis is, I would say, quite a showman. He's been on The Daily Show saying this many years ago, so he's often made this prediction. Now, the field's actually moved on a bit. There are also attempts being made to um, reconnect uh, the brains of people with paralysis directly to their, say, their paralysed limbs rather than going through an attached robotic arm or an attached exoskeleton. So perhaps that's where the really massive cutting edge of this field is at. But this is still very exciting.
Now, uh, that's all stuff that we think is going to happen. Um, we've got one story to talk about from this week's news section that definitely has happened. And it's something that, as a map geek, is music to my ears, quite frankly. Tell us about this. So imagine using Google Earth and you have a look at the Earth in that wonderful 3D globe and you see maps that have been made just a few hours ago and they update before your eyes. Well, this is the promise of a number of companies who are going to be launching um, sort of swarms of tiny satellites around the globe promising to provide almost real-time data with very high resolution across the Earth. And we're writing this week about how this could be a boon for all sorts of science projects if the satellites perform as promised. Is there any doubt that they will? I mean, Declan Butler, the reporter, says in the piece they're sort of toaster-sized. There's a swarm of them around. Um, how well are they predicted to do their job? Well, it's a, it's a key question. The companies involved are Planet Labs in San Francisco and Skybox Imaging in Palo Alto, and they all have slightly different uh, parameters for how closely they can see, but we're talking one to five metres resolution, which is pretty amazing when something like Landsat, the, the big uh, NASA satellite, is more like 15 to 100 metres, depending on the wavelength it's looking at. But the question is, for example, um, if you've got to stitch together sort of repeat images over a number of hours, will you always get the performance the same for every satellite, for every region, for every hour? Because if you don't, you can't really make scientific comparisons for how, say, deforestation has changed or, you know, down the line of which crops are being irrigated. So it needs to be consistent and, and not just high resolution. And those kinds of performance issues will really um, change what kind of science can be done. And because these satellites are relatively small and relatively cheap, maybe they won't be as useful to scientists as planned. But it could be um, really important for science and a, a real sea change for um, imaging, which is sort of relies on these enormous um, satellites the size of small buses that cost hundreds of millions of dollars and only a few big scientific collaborations can afford to uh, purchase what they're offering. You mentioned a resolution of one to five metres there. Uh, are people worried about privacy? I mean, people could walk in and out of these shots, uh, be it, their movements could be forecast by these things. Well, I mean, you raise a very good point, and um, government intelligence agencies and the military are going to be the biggest customers. In fact, skyboxes are going to stream short segments of near-live high-resolution video of the planet. So we will be seeing these issues raised, undoubtedly, just as we already are uh, with drones. OK, and do check out nature.com slash news for the best science news of 2014 so far, and some more of our predictions for the rest of the year. Thanks, Richard. That's it for this week. Do join us again next week when we'll be taking flying lessons from a flock of ibises. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. Happy New Year! <laughs>